0: All right, welcome, welcome to our Adult Sunday School Hour. I invite you to come grab your seats. We're going to be continuing our study, our tour through the Bible, and this morning we are going into the book of 1 Thessalonians. So let me pray for us as we open God's Word to understand who He is, this great God who has loved us and sent His Son to die for us. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to praise you and thank you this morning that you are a good and gracious King. We thank you for your word that you have preserved, that you have inspired and written for us to know you rightly and to worship you in the way that you command and call us to and invite us to with joy. I pray that this morning as we see your word unveiled in its beauty and splendor, the truths in it, that we would be changed and transformed, that we would glorify you, and praise you, and thank you for all that you've done, and all that you will do, that you've promised to do in the coming and sending of your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, our lesson plan is really to look at the background and setting of 1 Thessalonians. This is very much a story, and Paul is recounting a lot of details. So for us, it's helpful to look at the background and the context of the establishment, the planting of this church, and the history between Paul and this church. Likewise, after we set the background and the context, uh, we're going to look at an overview and an outline of the book to really understand uh, the way in which Paul has penned this letter, And then from looking at those um, observations and this outline, we're really going to identify the purpose of 1 Thessalonians. And once we have this purpose statement, this summary statement, at that point we're going to go back through each chapter of the book and see the ways in which this purpose is unfolded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So first let's jump into the background and context of this book If you open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, in the very first verse, we get important details around this, uh, about the background, and specifically the author and the audience. In the first verse, Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So we see here, the author is identified and the audience, this church in Thessalonica, And Thessalonica specifically um, was the capital of the region Macedonia. The population in the first century was around 200,000, and most of the inhabitants were native Greeks, but there was uh, a mixture in regards to this flourishing city. There was also Romans, there were Orientals, and there were Jews, likewise, that populated this city. It was actually located in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. And this was a a harbor city. So the three main harbors in the Aegean were Thessalonica, Ephesus, and also Corinth. And this was one of the major stops in Macedonia as the capital, as a a high economic um, place of travel from sea, and then also from land. Um, If you notice this little red line across the top of the map here, it's called the Ignatian Way. This was the, the road path east to west from Rome all the way to Asia. And so this pathway went right through Thessalonica. So any commerce, any travel going east to west, and all the being a major seaport, there was a lot of traffic among this city. And Paul wanted to come here and plant a church. And this is actually during his second missionary journey. Um, Whenever we're studying through the epistles, it's really helpful, because they're written to churches, to have your hand in the book of Acts and flipping back and forth to see what is it that was recorded by Luke during these missionary travels about these churches, and what is it that Paul's talking them about as he's writing to them. And specifically, the context uh, for 1 Thessalonians is really recorded in Acts 16-18. through And highlighted specifically in chapter 17. But Paul records in 16 this really start into Macedonia for the first time during their second missionary journey. So, to give you guys some of the travel log, we have Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so they're they called by a vision from the Lord to Macedonia, and they travel across that northeast corner of the Aegean, out of Asia, into Macedonia here in the north. And their first stop is at Philippi. And here in Philippi, they they don't even have a synagogue, but they start preaching the gospel, and people are coming to faith in Christ. But what happens is they experience some persecution, and they're actually driven out of Philippi by the governmental leadership there, and they left a church behind, and they traveled about 100 miles to the west to this town called Thessalonica. It's here that Paul planted the church that he's writing to, and he planted this church around 50 AD in Acts 17. And as they're um, preaching in the synagogue, there were some Jews, several Gentiles, who came to faith in Christ. And it's amazing what Paul is preaching as you recount these books, uh, these chapters in Acts, rather. He's preaching from the scriptures that the Messiah that's coming must die and rise again. And then he preaches, Jesus is this man, and you must repent and believe in Christ alone and trust him as your Lord. And so he's preaching this good news, people are saved, and it says there that he was there for three Sabbaths, which is about just three weeks. Um, it, It could be that he had been there for maybe a few months, but it wasn't long, and immediately there's this uproar of these jealous Jews that sort of start a riot and cause some problems for Paul and his compatriots. And so of course there's persecution again in Thessalonica and they they're asked by this these new church members that that they should go it's not safe for them in Thessalonica and so they're they're asked to leave and they travel 50 miles west to Berea after this short church plant in Thessalonica and of course the Bereans were known as these diligent searchers of scriptures And as Paul preached, uh, they searched the scriptures and found that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he is Lord over all, and they are to submit themselves to him, to trust in him alone for salvation. And so they believed in Jesus Christ, but those angry Jews in Thessalonica went 50 miles, and they were so upset at what Paul was doing, turning the world upside down with this message, that they, again, were persecuting him, and the Berean Christians now said, Paul, we need to get you out of Dodge. So because he was the main spokesperson, they actually took him by sea and traveled with him by ship all the way down to Athens, it says. And what happened is the Bereans that dropped him off, he gave them a message. He says, hey, I'm going to stay here in Athens. Send a message on your way back to Silas and Timothy and let them know I want them to meet me in Athens. And so he gives these instructions to the Bereans. They go back to their hometown and they let the Uh, Silas and Timothy know and then those two guys come down and meet Paul in Athens and this is of course where you we have the record of the Areopagus where he's preaching um, letting them know that there's this um, God who is the ruler and creator over all and some are engaged intellectually and others um, actually repent and believe and trust in Christ as the one true God And so he's continuing this missionary journey, his second one specifically, he meets up with these guys, but it's in Athens that Acts records that he's actually really concerned. Um, He really didn't spend much time in Philippi or Thessalonica or Berea because of the persecution, and the believers there were wanting to, to get him out of town for his safety, and so he's becoming more and more concerned in his prayers, he's thinking about them, and so what he decides to do is send Timothy and Silas back to the Macedonian area. And specifically, Timothy himself goes to Thessalonica. So he goes back. In the meantime, Paul travels over to Corinth and wants to continue propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as Paul travels to Corinth, Timothy is sent to Thessalonica, he's getting this report from the church there to see how are things going, what is taking root here? Are your is your faith being tempted and sifted by Satan? What's how how are you doing? And so, of course, these um, compatriots go to um, serve and encourage these new church plants, and then they return to meet Paul in Corinth, and it's this letter that comes out of Timothy's return from Thessalonica to Corinth. Paul hears this good news and he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But now Timothy has come to us from you in Thessalonica and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we also long to see you. So he's writing this letter in response to all this context of the establishment of the church, a really short time period, new believers, and he's concerned for their faith, and he hears this good report, and he wants to write and encourage them as well, hearing and responding with joy to all that God is doing in this new church plant. So Paul is writing this from Corinth during his second missionary journey, and based on historical dating, it's around 51 AD that he's writing uh, to this new church plant. So having looked at the background and the context of this letter, it really gives us a helpful information so that as we read through it, and Paul's recounting a lot of this church planning history, a lot of his ministry to them as it started, and even the details of this report, it helps us to understand what's really going on in this communication, this dialogue of Paul to this church plan that he penned and outlined in this letter. So now, understanding some of the background and context, now let's look at an overview of what was actually written. It's helpful in an epistle, uh, a specific type of genre. It's a letter, um, and this letter gives us um, some bearings. So we know there's a greeting at the beginning, and salutations, a conclusion at the end. And in the middle, there's this really two-section breakdown for 1 Thessalonians. There's the first three chapters, which really Paul goes through and remembers a lot of what's happened. He remembers the establishment of the church, the Thessalonians' initial faith and trust in Christ, and he rejoices in that and recounts some other details that we'll look at today. And then he transitions in chapter four to really focusing on instruction. And we see these details, even these specific headings and words uh, as key words in these chapter breakdowns. In chapter one, verse three, he's praying, he says that he's remembering before God, before our God and Father, your work of faith. In chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, saying, For you remember, he's recalling for their memory, brothers, our labor and toil among you. And in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy is the one reporting, as we saw, he says that you reported that you remember us always. There's this sort of remembering theme, recounting what has happened in the history and establishment of this church. And there's a lot of historical language as well in these first three chapters. You see this term, you know, over and over again. That's a remembering, recounting history. He says, you became, or you yourselves know this truth, or you were witness to it, you were there. For you know how we lived, he says. And he says, just as you know. So there's a lot of remembering and recounting that that is taking place in these first three chapters that are instructive and helpful for us to understand the context of the first first, uh, chapters that Paul's penning. And then he transitions to the second half of instructing. And we see this key word pop up in chapter four as well. Four verse two, he says, "'For you know what instructions we gave you "'through the Lord Jesus Christ.'" And it's at this point where he's he's trying to focus in on some teachings that he did give and also some teachings that they are needing. It's likely that Timothy came back with a good news report but also with some questions and concerns of what was going on in these new believers' lives. So he says phrases in chapter 4, verse 9, now concerning the topic of brotherly love, and starts teaching them about that. And he says in 4.13, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Let me, let me teach you about this good news of Christ's coming again. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, now concerning the times and seasons regarding the day of the Lord. And... Towards the end of chapter 5, verses 12 and 14, he says, We ask you, brothers, we urge you, brothers, to walk in a holy manner, worthy of the calling. And so he's calling them and instructing them in chapters 4 through 5. And that's helpful for us to see this, this breakdown in the structure. But there's also transitional pieces. And we have really two bookends and a hinge in the middle that are all prayers, Paul starts with prayer, he transitions with prayer, and he ends with prayer specifically for these new believers. And in the first prayer, he prays specifically for thankfulness. He says he's giving thanks to God for these believers' faith in Jesus Christ. And then in the second prayer, this transitional prayer, he's praying that God would continue to grow and abound their love and their living of holiness for Christ before transitioning then into instructing them about holy living. And he concludes after these instructions by saying, there ought to be this confidence in this future completion that God will accomplish. He's praying for confidence that that they would believe and trust in this God who is faithful to the very end that will keep them and sanctify them completely. So this gives us kind of an overview and a structure of how this letter was written methodically, intentionally, with purpose, to communicate specific truths. But we also ought to catch themes. So as you're looking at an outline, it's helpful to say, what are some, um, not just repeated words in regards to content analysis of the first section and the second section, but also, what is he seeking to talk about them thematically? And there's two specific themes that come up that are foundational to the book of 1 Thessalonians. The first would be suffering for Christ. The second theme would be the coming of Christ. These two themes are really given uh, a huge context and really compose the the nature and the content of what Paul is seeking to articulate to this new church. And the first theme is seen in um, first uh, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, we received uh, that you, rather the Thessalonians, when he's recounting this church plan, he says that you received the word in much affliction. This church was planted in the midst of suffering and persecution. It was not a peaceful transition for them. In chapter 2, verse 2, the apostles are speaking of their own example, recounting them being um, shamefully treated, experiencing suffering amidst much conflict, he said, leaving Philippi to come to Thessalonica. And he says, you, in chapter 2, verse 14, suffered the same things. They're not thinking and anticipating future suffering. These are believers who are currently being persecuted, and in Acts it recounts they're being blamed and accused, even in local government. They're saying, you're saying Christ is king, but Caesar is king, and hate that's going to cause some real problems because we have a good like, peace agreement with Rome right now, and we don't want them to come drop the hammer on us, and you saying there's a different king, that's, that's a big problem. And they're experiencing persecution because the government there in Thessalonica doesn't want to cause problems with Rome. And they're saying this propagation of the gospel, this allegiance to Christ as king and lord of all, that's foreign to Caesar's rule. And we don't want to rebel against Caesar. And so this, this persecution is is threaded throughout this book, and it ought to be evident to us that these believers were in the midst of suffering. And so Paul recognizing their suffering, talking about their suffering, identifying with their suffering, even saying that God has destined them for this suffering, also reminds them of the good news of Christ's coming. Christ's coming again. He says this actually beautifully at the end of each chapter. He, he brings us this idea of the return of their king. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says that they're waiting for God's son from heaven, who God raised from the dead, this Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. At the end of chapter 2, in verse 19, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our joy and our glory At the end of chapter 13, he also, in his transitional prayer, is is praying that they would be kept blameless in holiness before our God and Father. He says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's he's repeating this truth because in the midst of suffering, believers need to remember there is hope in our eternal King who is coming again. He teaches in chapter 4 specifically about the return of Christ based on the gospel and divine instruction, as we'll look at. And he says in 4.17, Then we who are alive, who are left here on the earth, not the dead, not those who are dead saints, we will be caught up together, he says, with these saints in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, he says, we will always be <coughs> with the Lord. Again, at the end of chapter 5, he prays in conclusion that they would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. These two themes are crucial for our understanding of what Paul was penning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and in the midst of this, it's important to also just catch the tone. To, to understand what is the demeanor in which the author is writing. Is he being corrective to these young Christians? Are they, are they messing around with immorality and getting caught up in these worldly ideologies? Are they, are they um, in, in some sort of rebellion against the truth that they've proclaimed and do they need to be confronted? Um, in this letter, it's very different than the church to Corinth. In this letter, there's, there's this overwhelming tone of encouragement. He's saying, hey, you guys are doing it. Keep doing it. You're walking in holiness, you're, you're abstaining from sexual morality. that's right, that's what God calls us to, and we ought to live for him. So he's seeking to encourage them, and multiple times you find this word even throughout the letter, as he's teaching and instructing in the second half of the letter in four eighteen, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He says in 5, 11, again, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He's seeking to cheer them on and say, hey, Christ has done an amazing work in your life, and that work's not done. Let's keep striving and persevering for holiness in light of our Christ's return. So with this outline and these observations, how can we sort of summarize and pull all these details together to understand the purpose of this letter that Paul wrote to this church? I think one way we can summarize it that's helpful for us as we study through this letter now in more more depth It's to understand that really the purpose of 1 Thessalonians, the reason Paul wrote, was to encourage suffering saints to continue in holy living in light of their coming king. These are the truths that Paul pulls together to say, I want you to be encouraged to persevere, to endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, knowing that living for Christ today is always uh, fixed on this hope of your coming king who will deliver you from the wrath to come. So having overviewed the structure of the letter, understanding the outline, the context historically, and now having this purpose statement, let's head back to our outline and really seek to to unpack this purpose as evidenced in each chapter of this book. So looking again, the first section of this letter would be the first three chapters, and it's this idea of remembering, specifically encouragement in remembering what God has done. So look with me in chapter one, in verse two and three, We see sort of this summary statement of chapter one, this encouragement and remembering where Paul is giving thanks to God for these believers' initial faith in Christ. Look with me in chapter one, verse two and three. He writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers and mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was overjoyed in recounting the faith of these new believers. Do you remember when Christ did that work in your life? How encouraging is it when somebody recounts with you this transformational stage where it's like, God has radically changed the way I think, the things I do, my affections, what encouragement there would be in the midst of affliction and suffering to remember Christ has done a real work in my life and it's rejoice worthy to our great God for what he has done. Paul was confident in these believers' salvation even though they were newer believers. And he says he was confident because of the way they received the gospel message. He says it was in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There was this confident faith in them that Christ is their Messiah, their Savior. He says that, Uh, that not only they received the gospel in a specific way, but he says, you guys also saw the way that me, Silas, and Timothy, we we experienced this joy in the spirit in the midst of suffering. He says, you followed our example. You had this spirit-transformed ability to actually say, thank you and praise you, God, that you are my God alone, and even in suffering, I can experience joy. He says, you had that sort of joy. That's evidence of real transforming grace in your life. Not only that, he says, you actually were spreading this gospel everywhere. Evidence of rejoicing faith is, is this faith that is able to proclaim this good news and spread it around the world. Look in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, for they, referring to the, the people in the Macedonian region, he says, they themselves report concerning us and the kind of reception that you received this gospel from us among you and how and he summarizes the gospel here he says how you turn to god from idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come i love this threefold summary of this gospel that they've received that others are hearing about their response he says you you turned away from selfish self-serving idols these pagan worshipers And remember, the Greek culture, especially in Thessalonica, was this sort of polytheism about Zeus and Aphrodite, all these gods they worshipped, and he says, you turned away from that, and instead, you served the true living God, the one true God. That's a radical shift, and he says, along with this, you not only believed the good news of Jesus Christ, you trusted in his promised return, and you said, even in suffering, I look and hope and wait for Christ's return, for his deliverance Not just from sin and suffering, but from this world and from my sinful flesh. This is how Paul starts this letter. What an encouragement it would be to those enduring suffering to recount and to hear a father in the faith recount the way in which they received the gospel message and the way in which that's being, that God's using that not only in their life, but in the whole region. And he's giving thanks to God for their evident and resounding faith all throughout Macedonia. That would have been very encouraging news for suffering saints. But he continues, not just in chapter 1, but then into chapter 2. He wants to encourage them through remembering not just their response of faith, but he wants to recount for them his example. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were, were godly examples toward these believers. And he wants to help them remember because it's one of Satan's tactics, obviously in church planning, was to undermine the motives of God's messenger. They wanted to attack saying, Paul, yeah, he, he gave you this message, but he got out of Dodge. Now you're here experiencing all the suffering. Was he really thinking about your best interest? I mean, is this really the path you want to walk? Because the polytheism route is much more peaceable. And Paul's preaching and teaching here, hey, remember the way that we treated you. This was not ill motives. He says, my motives weren't evil and I, I was only rather seeking to please God. God. He says, I wasn't trying to flatter you, or I wasn't in it for greed or selfish glory. He says, rather, I was gentle among you. Like a mother nursing her child, we loved you, not only in giving you the gospel, but, he says, we gave you our very selves. We sacrificially loved you. And he says, not only like a mother, but also like a father, they were selfless, and they exhorted them and encouraged them with God's word and God's truth. He says, this isn't sort of like... Uh, bait-and-switch type of message. This is, we, we lived it among you, and we labored, he says, day and night, so not to burden them, and, and lived before them holy lives toward these fellow believers and exhorted and encouraged them to live the same way for their same God. This is the encouragement Paul gives because he wants them to remember, you're not alone in your suffering. And I love the way he summarizes this towards the end of chapter two because he says that that he's rejoicing with thankfulness that they received the gospel, not as Paul's words, but as God's words himself. And he said this was evidenced in their persecution by their own countrymen. It's interesting, he, he parallels the persecution of these new Greek believers in Thessalonica, how the Greeks are persecuting them, and he says this is how it always is for God's people. He says, I, Paul, was a Jew, and I was driven out of Judea, He said the churches in Judea, they likewise are persecuted by their own countrymen. And he recounts even Christ himself was killed by his own people who rejected him. The prophets of old likewise killed to the people they were sent to be among and minister and bless. He says this is what God has destined us for. We endure suffering. We are experiencing affliction and persecution because we're trusting in Christ And that comes even from our own countrymen. This is part of living for Christ. But the encouragement here is you're not alone. In the midst of suffering, it feels like everything's sort of uh, weighted down on you. And like you're by yourself. And this letter comes as a balm that says, this is Christ's call for us. Not just you. And he wants to encourage them in remembering that's what we experienced. We told you that's what you would experience. This is what our Lord experienced. We're not in this alone. And we can endure with hope He says, endure with hope. And in chapter three, he continues remembering with them. He wants to encourage them by remembering Paul's eagerness to encourage and see them. And you see this repeated idea at the end of chapter two and then also into chapter three, this idea of seeing them face to face. This joyful um, reconciliation or, or even just rejoining together that you anticipate with beloved believers in Christ. And he says, that Paul's recounting that in the end of chapter 2, he says, I was torn away from you. And that he was even hindered from coming back to them. He says, Satan hindered me. I I wanted to go back, but I was not able. And instead, he sent Timothy to them. This is where he's recounting again that he was eager to see them. He was concerned about their faith. And so he sent his brother Timothy back to Thessalonica in the midst of suffering, in the midst of this journey going on to to spread the gospel. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he writes... Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, he says. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions that they were experiencing. And as we saw in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy comes back with this report and he says that their faith and love were flourishing And Paul says, Your evident faith and love for Christ, that encourages me in my suffering in Athens. That encourages me in my afflictions in Corinth. He says, That's God's work, being faithful to you and hearing of that brings joy in my life. Paul was comforted in his afflictions by these new believers and their endurance and suffering. What an encouraging message they would receive from a father in the faith that wow, this, these things that I'm experiencing actually is bringing joy and encouragement to my, my father in the faith? How, how am I encouraging him? I feel like I need stuff from him, but to see that God uses our suffering, even to encourage seasoned saints in the word, what an encouraging message that would be to hear from the apostle Paul. At the end of chapter three, Paul transitions again with this hinged prayer. At the end of chapter three, in, starting in verse 11, He says, Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. We long to be with you. We long to see you face to face. He's even praying to that end. And he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts, he says, blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. It's here that he transitions in this prayer even to say, holiness before our coming Savior is what I want to instruct you about. I'm praying that for you, and now I want to instruct you in accord with my desire that God would continue to help you endure and holy living for our holy King. And so we see here, um, as we transition to the second section of the book, we have these last two chapters, chapters 4 and 5. We see Paul giving uh, exhortation and instruction, but he's still got this tone of encouragement. He wants to encourage these suffering saints toward holy living. He knows they are seeking to do that, but he wants to remember and remind them to continue to endure. And if you look in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, he starts in this section by saying, For this is the will of God. This is what God desires for you, believer. He says, your sanctification. That you would be set apart, that you would be holy before God. And he says specifically that you would be set apart and holy among a sinful and wicked and a world that is persecuting you. He says specifically, he starts with sanctification by identifying that you are to abstain from sexual immorality. So much of idolatry in their world and ours today is wrapped up in sexual immorality. And scripture is is prevalent in instruction against it, and we ought to recognize this is a crucial instruction for us, that we are not to get caught up in the world's ideologies and and fall prey to their their thinking because it's always thinking that leads to this sort of living. It's living that opposes God's morality and says, God, you aren't the one who decides what sex is about. I want to decide what it's about. And he's saying, abstain from sexual immorality. He says, instead, be self-controlled, Live a holy life that's seeking to honor your king. God doesn't call us, he said in this book, to impurity, but rather to holiness. Not only does he instruct them about holy living through abstention in sexual minority, but also through, through overflowing in brotherly love. He says in chapter 4, verse 9, "...now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another." For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia region. But we urge you, he says, our brothers, to do this more and more. You see the pom-poms for Paul? You're doing it. Keep doing it. Keep loving this way. This is what God has called us to. He says specifically in this idea of brotherly love that they are called to a quiet living, to mind their own affairs, And he says even to work with their hands. And this parallels well to chapter two where he's recounting, we labored among you. I was a tent maker. I I worked hard, toiled night and day so that we weren't a burden to you. He says, that's the type of living that you're called to as a Christian. Work hard, be diligent. And he says the reason. It's not so that we avoid the world, but he says, so that you would walk properly before outsiders. This sort of holy living is a testimony to a fallen and broken world. And he says, you ought to live holy lives. It matters. They're looking, they're watching. And if God opens their eyes to see, they will be drawn into this fellowship that is wholly set apart for their holy king. In the second section of um, this part on instructions, we see a breakdown not just in chapter four, verses one through 12, but we see him transition to instruction about hope in their coming Lord. And this is in chapter four, Through uh, 4 starting in verse 13 through chapter 5 and verse 11. And he wants to encourage them, these suffering saints, to hope in their coming king. He says in chapter 4 verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are fallen asleep. It seems that there were um, such severe persecutions in Thessalonica that they were concerned about their fellow saints who had died in persecution. He's saying, what hope do they have? for seeing and delighting and being rescued out of this persecution. He says, we have saints who have died. And Timothy's reporting back, and Paul wants to instruct them. And it's amazing, the hope that he offers them is twofold. He, hopes, he shows them the hope that's foundational in the gospel they've already received. And then he teaches them, he says, by divine instruction as well. First, he, he reminds them of the gospel truth. He says, we have believed that Christ died and that he rose again. Central to the gospel is this resurrection truth, and he reminds them that resurrection is foundational for the believer. And then he teaches them about this this coming moment of resurrection, even for dead saints and for those who are alive and remain. He says those alive at the Lord's coming will not precede those who have died there's actually an honor in a a, a foremost um, ascension that comes to those saints who have died. And he says, the Lord, he says, will descend from heaven. And there's this cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the very trumpet of God. This is a loud event. He says, he's gonna have everybody's attention. It's a big deal. Our Lord is coming and it will not be silent. And he says at this moment, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he says this idea of this rapture up with these fellow saints who have deceased. He says, then those who are alive will be, he says, caught up together with those saints in the clouds. This is the idea of rapture. And it comes from the Latin word for this idea of caught up. We don't see it here in print as an English word. But this is, this is the idea of we're gathered together at our coming Lord and we meet him up there. And he says, we're caught up together with them in the clouds. And it's really the same thing that Jesus himself taught to his disciples in John 14. When he was seeking to encourage them that the Holy Spirit would come and be with them. And he says, I'm going to go to my father's house and prepare a place for you. And he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you. He says, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. That where I am, there you will be also. And Paul has the same conclusion after this idea of the rapture. He says, so in Thessalonians, he says, so we will always be with the Lord. Paul tells them this truth, to to take this truth of hope in our coming king, and he says, encourage one another in the midst of affliction, that although we're destined for persecution, we're not destined for God's wrath, and that we will be delivered by our great king he also uh, talks further about this hope in our coming Lord and talking about the times and seasons of the day of the Lord. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, this idea of God's judgment for the wicked and deliverance for the righteous— it will come like a thief in the night, he says, specifically to those who are in the dark. It's amazing how persecution amongst, Christian, amongst Christians always brings about these questions of final judgment. Am I doing something wrong? Am, are, are these the end times? Like We're always kind of like, what's going on? Like This is real bad. And the Thessalonians were experiencing the same thing. They had these questions and were seeking to understand. And he's saying to them, reminding them, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night to those who are people that are saying this idea of peace and security. Likely, uh, scholars say this was a, a, the mantra of Rome. Hey, if you, if you obey Roman rule and Caesar is, is your king, then you get to experience peace and security because we carry the big stick. So um, that's how you experience peace in this broken and sinful world. And he says, but those who say pre- peace and security, this, this day of the Lord will bring about sudden destruction for them. Because they're trusting in the wrong king, rather he says the Christians experience is we actually experience persecution, but he says that we ought to be vigilant and watchful, expectant that it's not going to be like a thief in the night to, to in the night for us to rob us, but rather it's it's this sudden coming of deliverance for Christians out of persecution to avoid the wrath of God and to be delivered by our King. This is the hope he holds out for these believers and. In, Chapter 5, verse 9, he says, For God, specifically, has not destined us Christians for wrath, but rather to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul paralyzed this idea of God's destined purpose. In chapter 3, he says, You're destined for suffering and affliction. But here in chapter 5, he says, but God has not destined to you for his wrath. Keep encouraging one another with these words in the midst of persecution. Our king is coming, and he will deliver his children from the wrath that comes toward those who have rejected him as king. And the final uh, portion of this um, end of the letter on instruction is in chapter 5, starting in verse 12, towards the end of the book. We see this encouragement towards holy living with the church. And if you kind of zoom out, if you recount this instruction section, the first part of chapter four is about holy living among the world. And then he has this hope in Christ's return, and then at the end here, it's holy living within the church. And and if you see this picture, it's like the hope of Christ's return is meant to fuel holy living, both in the world and among believers. And that's what Paul's communicating in this letter, that, that he wants them to endure by holy living for Christ. He says, what does this look like? Christians are instructed to live with humility, with patience, kindness, and having constant thanksgiving to God, their Savior. He says you ought to respect in a lovingly, um, with loving esteem rather those who God has uh, put in authority over you in the church. Church leadership is to be respected and esteemed. He says believers also are to pursue peace amongst the body. He says that if someone is idle and, and lazy and, and not pursuing holiness, you are to admonish them. He says, but for those that are faint-hearted, those that are weary and well-doing, he says you need to encourage them. And if those who, who, who are weak, that they, they maybe need to put some armor on, he says you need to help the weak. They need to grow in sanctification. But he says in all of these different categories of believers where we go through these these times, he says, be patient with them all. He recounts for them that even though they're experiencing evil from the outside world, to not repay evil for evil, but instead to seek to do good to one another. And he, he has this um, repetition of this extensive command. He says, always without ceasing in all circumstances that we're to rejoice, to pray, and give thanks to God. And he says, because this is God's will for you. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says, God's will for you is your sanctification. And here he says, God's will for you is rejoicing and giving thanks to God through prayers and supplications. These are the things that God has destined and planned for us to live in this life. And we ought to endure and pursue walking in them. And then he ends with some prohibitions for Christian living as well. He says, don't quench the Holy Spirit Don't despise prophecies. Rather, he says, test them against God's word, and if it holds up as true, hold on to it as good. Keep away from every form of evil. And then he encourages them with his closing prayer, saying that peace and security is offered by Rome, but the God of peace himself, he will sanctify you completely, and that he would keep you blameless at Christ's coming again. He encourages them in his prayer that God is faithful and that he will do it. What an encouraging letter to saints enduring suffering. Paul knew that hope in our coming king is what shapes how we ought to live. He sought to strengthen these persecuted believers by writing this letter with a specific purpose. And his purpose was to encourage suffering saints to continue in holy living today in light of their coming, King. I think for us, this is very applicable because it applies to every area of life. The coming of Christ is a foundational truth that ought to motivate for us too every aspect of Christian living. We ought to live pure and holy lives as believers as well. Why? Well, Thessalonians says it's because Christ is coming again. We want to live lives that reflect the holiness of our delivering, saving Savior. We ought to love and forgive one another here amongst our church body. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. And we want together to encourage one another to walk worthy of the gospel that has saved us and redeemed us. This gospel message that reminds us that Christ is coming again. We also ought to share this gospel with the lost. Why? Because Jesus is coming back again. And we want others to repent and believe and be delivered from the day of the Lord, from this wrath that is coming towards all those who rebel against Christ as their king. This is good news for us. As we endure suffering, as we experience opposition, we must remember our king is coming. And that changes the way we live today for our king. I hope you were encouraged to study deeper. There's so much more to unpack in this book, but I hope that this will, will whet your appetite for more enduring, encouraging strength from God's word. I wanted to uh, thank you guys for being a part of our class. We're coming to the end of the year where we take a little break for two weeks, so uh, be sure to come back in two weeks. We won't have adult Sunday school or any Sunday school service um, on December 24th, Christmas Eve, or on uh, New Year's Eve, which is Sunday the 31st as well. So join us next year um, as we continue our study through in this tour through the Bible, and we will go through an overview of 2 Thessalonians to continue the saga of this story. And with that, you're dismissed, and please uh, join us back here at 1030 for worship.